Our sermon text is from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside, beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will be give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. <coughs> God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. <laughs> Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? <laughs> Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, There are yet Oh, do you not say, 
There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Other others have labor, labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, <coughs> they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. If you have looked at your bullets and you might notice that today's sermon is titled uh, The Blueprint for a Revival. And I'll be honest, most of the time my sermon titles don't, don't mean a whole lot. <laughs> um, but I think this is really what I want to talk to you about as we look at John chapter 4 today. I want us to, to look at this story and, and realize that this is not simply a story of an interaction that took place 2,000 years ago, but this is a roadmap for us in a lot of ways. This is a story that, that tells us quite a bit um, about reaching our neighbors, about sharing the gospel. See, the core of this story is a story about people discovering Jesus and then turning to him in faith. I think it's that microphone. I might... It's a low threatening hum going on. Um, so anyway, let's talk about this, this, this story. It's the setting, really, that has a lot uh, to inform us uh, about our current situation, because we live in a community that, uh, well, generally speaking, we live in a community that has already decided on Christianity. Uh, most people think, whether they, they actually know anything or not, they think they know what Christianity is all about, and most people have already rejected it, right? A lot of people have a, a bad taste in their mouth about the Christian faith, and maybe that's where you are too. Maybe you have a bad taste in your mouth, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. You know, statistics show, Katie was talking about the reality of Ireland. Statistics show that in our own city, uh, it's a, a very small portion of people that are going to a church that teaches the Bible every Sunday, like less than 3% of people. Um, and daily life seems to affirm that for me. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had, how many conversations I've killed <laughs> by, by letting the information slip that I'm a pastor, right? And pretty soon it gets kind of awkward because there's so much cultural baggage there. So much stuff that comes along with that announcement. Um, and so I think there's a lot of similarities here between our world today and this world that Jesus is walking into in chapter 4. Um, so I want us to look at a few characteristics of this story this morning and, and see how it teaches us about our faith. To see how it teaches us about what the true message of our faith is and how that message is going to take root in a community like ours. So... Buckle in today, folks. I have four points to give here. I know, it's hard to believe. Four points. 
uh, in 30 minutes or so. Um, but I want us to see what we, what we can learn from, from this story. I want us to see what we can learn from the place that Jesus visits, what we can learn from the message Jesus delivers, from the response that Jesus receives, and from the challenge that Jesus gives. So the place, the message, the response, and the challenge. That's where we're going this morning. So first, the place that Jesus visits. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. Uh, by the way, can we clap for Ariel for that like, you know, great reading of John Ford? That was tough. I'm glad I didn't have to do that. Um, verses 3 and 4 in our passage tells us where Jesus is. It says that he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Um, now, technically speaking, going through Samaria was the shortest route for Jesus that day. But there were other ways to get there. In fact, some sources will tell you that a lot of times Jewish people would go around Samaria so they wouldn't have to interact with that community. But Jesus, it says, he had to go through Samaria. So why? Well, I want to tell you, if you don't already know, there, is an enormous, there was an enormous amount of, of prejudice between Jews and Samaritans during this time period. Um, they had bad history. We just studied Jeremiah this fall. If you can remember any of that story, I told you about that nation of Israel and how uh, the northern nation was conquered by Assyria around 722 B.C. But what we didn't talk about was how, after the fact, Assyria took their pick of the, the Israelites living there and took them away, and then they left kind of the remnant. They left whoever else they didn't feel like was, was worthy, and then they resettled that land with the Syrian people. Um, and as they did that, those people intermarried, and the people that were left in that land are called Samaritans. And then after the exile, after these Israelites were, who were taken away came back to their conquered territory, they found these people there. And when they came back, they, they saw these Samaritans with, as children of political rebels. They viewed them as racial half-breeds, and they saw them as people who had a tainted and unholy religion. They saw the Samaritans as unclean people, and especially Samaritan women. Uh, around this time, within a generation, we have some laws written by certain rabbis, and one of them says that, the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from the cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanness, which is just insane, right? It's, it's, it's this idea that, that the people are always unclean and we should avoid them at all costs. And here, Jesus has to go through Samaria. He goes straight through Samaria and he speaks to this woman with no reservations. And she's shocked. Verse 9, she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And later we see when the disciples come back, they're shocked too. It says they don't even ask any questions. They're surprised, so surprised to find him talking to this woman. So what makes that a model for us? How is this some kind of blueprint for, for our community today? Well, I don't think it's too hard to see. Look around us. We live in a neighborhood with a lot of boundary lines. And now, of course, we're in a progressive community. None of us want to think of ourselves as, as prejudiced. None of us want to, want to think that, that we are excluding any other people. 
But I think there are, we have to be honest and say that there are parts of this community that we rarely pass through. Maybe I could ask you positively just to think about your own life. Where do you hang out? Who are the people that you, you spend most of your time with? Do you find yourself taking the direct route and spending time with your, your next door neighbor? <laughs> or do you find yourself passing by the people who are different from you to hang out with the people who are like you? Jesus commands us pretty clearly in Matthew. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we all agree with that, right? That's great. Love your neighbor as yourself. Nobody, nobody can disagree with that. That's a, a common value that we all hold. But do you even know who your neighbor is? Do you know what their name? Have you ever had a meal with them before? That MLK quote that we had at the beginning of the service um, is really convicting to me. It says, one of the great tragedies of life is that men seldom bridge the gulf between practice and profession, between doing and saying. A persistent schizophrenia leaves so many of us tragically divided against ourselves. We talk eloquently about our commitment to the principles of Christianity, and yet our lives are saturated with the practices of paganism. We make our fervent pleas for the high road of justice, and then we tread unflinchingly on the low road of injustice. In another place, he says, people fail to get along because they fear each other. And they fear each other because they don't know each other, and they don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. So here's the vision of our church. It's printed every week right here on the back of our bulletin. You might have one in your seat or in your hand, but it says, Christ the King exists in Jamaica Plain and Roxbury to see people reconciled to God and one another through the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as this takes place, we hope to see a positive impact in every aspect of the community where our members live, work, and play. That's what we're striving to be as a church. But the truth is, we're, we're never going to get there if we don't cross boundaries. This passage gives us two very practical, I mean, just as we look at the story, there's two very practical tips about how we could start, how we could begin to do that. And the first one is, uh, well, we need to be humble. Verse 9 is not polite. <laughs> when, when this woman looks at Jesus, she says, why are you talking to me? But Jesus doesn't get angry. He keeps engaging. He keeps responding. Now, I'll say, it's hard to use Jesus as an example for us because the difference between us and Jesus is we're at fault here. <laughs> a lot of times when we're engaging with people, we do have things to apologize for. None of us are, are innocent in these divisions in our neighborhood. Every single one of us bears the guilt of building those. But we need to be humble. We need to engage. We need to, to recognize that, that there might be some tension and to, and to press on. And then, too, the other really practical thing is, look at Jesus. We need to be the ones who make the effort to go. And when I say we, I mean Christians. Christians are the ones who need to cross the boundaries. Jesus didn't write a letter to the Samaritan woman, right? He didn't send it ahead and say, hey, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Meet me in the temple in a few days. I'd love to talk to you about some things. No, he went to her. Literally. He went to her. But also, figuratively, we need to go. 
We need to go and reach out to people. We need to be the ones who are willing to, to make ourselves less comfortable for the sake of others. We can't walk around someone who is different from us to share the gospel with someone who's just like us. So what does that mean? I don't know. As I'm thinking about this this week, I find myself feeling you know, incredibly challenged by this passage. I think it might mean that we need to shake some things up around here. That we need to really question the things that we do. Are we really making this a place where people can come and feel comfortable? The very least that this passage tells us, as we're looking at this as a blueprint, it says that Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, and that's only going to happen when we go out to them in humility and love. So, that's the, that's the place. That's what we have to learn from the place. Now let's look at the message. What does Jesus actually say here? Now, it's not a coincidence that chapter 4 comes after chapter 3 in the Gospel of John. You remember last week we talked about the story of Nicodemus. And I think this is an intentional contrast between Nicodemus and the, the Samaritan woman. Because these two characters, in a lot of ways, are very different. If you remember the story of Nicodemus, he was a, an upstanding Jewish leader. He was a teacher. He was a well-respected man who seemed to have his whole life together. But when Jesus speaks to both of these people, when he speaks to Nicodemus and when he speaks to the, the woman at the well, he shows both of them the same thing. He tells them both the same thing, that there's only one road to salvation. For Nicodemus, if you recall last week, he just needed to tell him that there's no way you can merit salvation, that your moral qualifications aren't good enough. There's nothing that you're going to do to make yourself worthy of God. You've got to repent of trusting in your own righteousness. That's the idol that you've got to leave behind. And now, today, as he's talking to the Samaritan woman, he's equally bold. Jesus isn't pulling punches here. He's equally bold calling this woman to repentance. Let's, let's see what we know about her first. Verse 6, it tells us that <clears throat> Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And then you, you got a little footnote probably in your Bibles that say it's about noon. It's the hottest time of day. And here comes this woman to get water from the well. Every single person you, you read will tell you the same thing. Nobody does that. It doesn't make sense to go out in the hottest period of the day by yourself to go get water. The way normally it happened was either early in the morning a group of women would go and get water, or late in the evening as the sun was setting. But they would always go together in these cooler times because it's hard work to pull water out of this well. But this woman is by herself. And that means this isn't like when you see somebody who's alone at the movie theater, right? I used to go to the movie theater, and I'd see that person sitting by themselves, and I'd be like, oh, I feel bad for them. Now that I have kids, I'm like, oh, going to the movie by yourself is the greatest thing on earth. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't want to infer. <laughs> this, this person may be having the greatest holiday of their life. <laughs> no, no, for this woman to be alone meant that she was, she was shunned. Or if she wasn't shunned, she at the very least was avoiding people. She didn't want to be around them. And so she came when she wouldn't have to deal with the crowds. And in that moment, Jesus approaches her. And here's their interaction. He says, give me a drink. And she says, how are you going to ask me for a drink? I'm a, I'm a Samaritan woman. 
And then Jesus responds in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so he says that and she says, well, that sounds pretty good. (laughs) And then she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or come here to draw water. And, you know, to us, maybe that sounds strange that it sounds like she doesn't get it. But the word living water, uh, it's got a double meaning. It means flowing stream as well. And so it makes total sense that she would interpret it that Jesus is saying, I've got some fresher water for you that's so great you won't be thirsty. Um, But Jesus, knowing that she doesn't get it, responds to her in this uh, amazing way. He says, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answers him, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. I think this woman's response, it always kind of makes me laugh. I feel like it's so understated. She's like, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) I don't, uh, it's just, she's just so cool about it, you know? Um, he, he, he reveals everything about her life. And why? Why does he bring that up? I mean, does she need her husband to get water? No, she doesn't. That, why does he point that out? Because Jesus sees her. And Jesus sees her heart. And he sees the place of her, her deepest desire and her deepest pain and her deepest need. He sees the sin that has defined her life and that has controlled her. And that's why later when she goes to tell people, what does she say? She says, go tell. He told me everything I've ever done. Just this one line. Because this was the thing that was essential to who she was. This was the thing that had taken control of her whole life. And don't we all have that thing? Don't we all have that that thing that has become so central to us that that place that we always go for value and for meaning, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's your your job or your kids. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's some talent that you have. For her, it was relationships. Have you ever been there? Have you been in that place? I, I knew this high school kid who was a Christian kid. Said he was a Christian kid and uh, was dating a girl who was no good for him. Uh, she, she wasn't a Christian, and they were, they were into all sorts of trouble. You know, they were, they were sexually promiscuous, and, and he felt terribly guilty about it. But at the time, he just wasn't willing to break off the relationship. And the reason, when you get down to the heart of it, was because he thought that that relationship was going to give him more than obedience to Christ would. He thought that the water from that well was going to be more satisfying than the well of of living water that Christ offered to him. You guys remember Jeremiah 2? It wasn't that long ago when we preached it. I know you guys probably go home and memorize all these chapters we read. Um, Jeremiah chapter 2 speaks exactly to this. It says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves that can hold no water, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
Jesus' message to this woman is the same as it was for Nicodemus, if you think about it. And it's the same as it is for us. He's saying, turn away from your idols. You're not going to find life in anything other than surrender to God. You're not going to be satisfied by building the perfect reputation, by building the perfect name for yourself like Nicodemus did. And you're not going to be satisfied by your relationships. You're not going to be satisfied by sleeping around. You're not going to be satisfied by other things. All that stuff, it promises pleasure. It promises value. It, It promises meaning in your life. But it only brings death. Jesus is saying to her, and he's saying to us, you're going to be spiritually thirsty. You're always going to be wanting more until you turn to me and drink deeply from the living waters of my spirit. And that's the message that John is trying to give us here in this book. Jesus has come to replace the broken cisterns of our sin with the living water of the spirit. Over and over again, that's what he's going to tell us. Jesus has come to give us something better. Remember the the miracle of the wine. Jesus has come to give us something better. How does he do that? He does it by his substitutionary death on the cross. He does it by bearing your sin and paying for it with his death so you don't have to. He does it by rescuing you and redeeming you and by you placing your faith in him and giving you his Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus came to do. And at that moment, in our story, he looks right at this woman, and he says to her, verse 23, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He says, the Father is seeking people to worship Him. The reason I'm here is because the Father is going to get His people to worship Him. The Father is seeking you to worship Him. That's the good news that Jesus has come for. Jesus has come for you. And that's the good news we have to share with this community. That's the message. That's what we have to learn from what Jesus says here. But there's more for us to learn. Real quickly, look at the response, okay? Let's see the response that Jesus receives. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town to the people and said, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? There's a lot packed in those verses, a lot of info. And John, he doesn't waste details. All the stuff in here is in here for a reason. And I want you to see two things. First of all, she leaves her bucket. Now, of course, she's going to actually literally need to drink water. (laughs) She's going to have to keep drinking water to live. But this is, is a symbolic moment for her. Because even though she doesn't totally understand all the finer points of doctrine, she knows that she wants what Jesus has, and she leaves that bucket behind. People turn from the broken cisterns when they see Jesus. But then the other thing, the second point is, where did she go? She went to the people, right? She went out to those exact people who she was trying to avoid, 
the people that she had planned her day around not seeing. <laughs> and she goes out to tell them this great news. That's what happens. When you realize that the gospel is really good news, this is what happens. That when you realize that salvation is not just for, for good people, but it's for people who see their need. It's for the people that, that Christ has come to redeem. When you realize that, you got to tell people. That's what we do with good news, right? There is a, a bagel shop that sets up in here on Saturdays. Has anybody been there? It's called Exodus Bagels. They're like right back there in that corner on Saturdays during the farmer's market. And I'll tell you what, those bagels are good news. <laughs> I, I, I went last Saturday and I got a sandwich called the, the Resolution. It was a, a beef pot roast with horseradish slaw on a sesame bagel. And, and man, it was awesome. And I'll tell you what I did. As soon as I ate it, I told every person I saw, you got to go get one of those sandwiches before they run out. And during the week, I must have told three or four people, like, this is a great sandwich. I even got on Twitter and I wrote, this sandwich has changed my life today. <laughs> it was good news. I wanted to share it. That's what we do with good news. What was her message? What was the good news that this woman went to share? She only had talked to Jesus for a minute. What did she have to say? Well, here's what she says. Come see. Come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Come and see. Look, I know that when we start talking about evangelism, I make, it makes people nervous. We don't like the idea of, of sharing our faith. And, you know, nobody wants to be those, the pushy people, you know. <laughs> nobody wants to be the, those people making you feel uncomfortable on the train or, or, or knocking on your door while you're trying to eat dinner with your family. Nobody wants to do that. But sometimes the most effective method of evangelism we have is just to say, come and see. Come and see. Especially in our city today, where people just want to see something real. Say, come and see Jesus. And look what happens. Verse 39, towards the end of our passage, it tells us, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Many people believed. <laughs> there aren't a lot of things more powerful than seeing someone's life changed. When you see somebody who has, has been impacted by the gospel, when you see somebody who, whose life is being transformed by Christ, it is effective. It's affecting. And these people see this. They see this woman who, who beforehand was doing everything she could to get away from them, now running up and grabbing their shirt collar and saying, you've got to see this guy got to come see this guy. He told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Christ? <laughs> and what happens? It says, and so the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay there for two days. And many more believed because of the word. And, the, and then they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Folks, for those of you who are, are nervous about sharing your faith, this come and see method is pretty good. <laughs> but where do we bring people to see Jesus? 
It's the church, right? The body of Christ. This is where people are going to see Jesus. And it's not just your personal testimony that people need. People need Jesus. <laughs> people need the church. This is the place where people are going to see the love of Christ incarnate. This is the place where people are going to hear what his word teaches. Now, it might take a little longer than two days, but, you know, that's how Jesus did it. <laughs> but bring people back here to this community. A place where they can experience real life and grow and learn. This is the blueprint, right? We've got to share the gospel like it's actually good news. We've got to tell people about it the way we, we tell them about a good movie we saw. <laughs> tell them about it because it's great. And then we've got to bring them into the church, to a place where they can set down roots and gain real knowledge and grow so that their faith isn't just based on your faith, but it's based on Christ. So that's the response he gets. Real quickly now, let's just talk about the challenge now that Jesus gives. So we saw the setting, what that has to teach us about crossing our boundaries. We saw the message that it's the same for all people. Turn from your idols and turn to Christ for life. We saw the, the response, what it looks like when that hits home with you. But now I want us to see finally the challenge. Maybe you're saying, what, what's left? Didn't we just get to the end of the story? And yeah, we did. I, but I skipped a big chunk. <laughs> I skipped this whole thing in 31. But you know what? There's a reason I made Ariel read it. <laughs> it's important. There's this interlude in the middle where the disciples come back in the midst of this uh, story about this woman. It's before we see the massive response. It's before we see the whole town coming to faith on her profession and then coming to Jesus to sit and learn. It's before the revival in the hearts of Samaria. And they come and they're shocked. They come and they're shocked to see what's happening. They're surprised that Jesus is talking to this woman. They're, they're even too embarrassed to even mention it. They don't ask him anything about it. But Jesus, he forces the issue. He says, basically, here's why I'm talking to her. At the end of verse 35, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He says to his disciples, who are, are so busy just passing through this town, he says, you are so concerned with your own agenda that you don't even realize the fields are white with harvest. We are standing on, on the edge of revival in this country. <laughs> there are people all around us on the verge of faith. And you're so caught up in your own agenda that you don't even notice. And I think this is a big challenge for us. Maybe especially for us as we uh, celebrate Martin Luther King this Sunday. Jesus sends his church out to sow and to reap. Jesus sends us out to reap the fruit of his spirit that's been working, that's been working in this community long before any of us got here to reap the fruit of prayers, of generations of Christians who have, have lived in this community. And he sends us out to sow. To sow the seed of the gospel in the lives of our friends and our neighbors. To pray 
to pray for them. You know, do you spend time just praying for the people that come across your path? He sends us to share the good news. But a lot of time, we're too busy to do that. We're too consumed with our own agenda to, to stop. To stop and pray for a guy on the street or to, to invite our neighbor to come over for, for dinner someday. And so we need to pray. I think the challenge for us is we need to recognize that, that we are the disciples in this story. And we need to pray. We need to pray that God would open our eyes to see that the field is white for harvest. We need to pray that, that seeds that have already been sown would bear fruit. And we need to pray that, that we ourselves would be sowing seeds that will bear fruit generations down the road. But most of all, we need to pray that we'd see Jesus. That we would see that Jesus has come for his worshipers. And he's not just crossed cultural boundaries, but he has crossed time and eternity to make you his own. And he will not rest until every single one of his children has come to him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are the one who does the work of salvation. And as we look at this chapter and we see it as a, as a blueprint for our own community, we have to recognize there's no steps uh, that we can follow to make things happen. But Lord, you've promised us already in your word that you are seeking worshipers. Father, I want to pray for everyone here in this room who calls themselves yours. And I pray, God, that you would, would transform us into people uh, who are doing your work. People whose hearts are, are, are committed to your kingdom. Lord, I want to pray for the churches in this city that aren't our churches. And I want to pray that the gospel would go forth and that those churches would explode. Lord, I want to pray that whatever it takes, your kingdom would come. Lord, I want to pray for the people here in this room who may not know you. And as they see Jesus approach this woman at the well, they're wondering, will Jesus ever approach me? Lord, I pray that you would, you would speak to that person now and tell them of your love. I pray that you would call them to repentance, to lay down the broken cisterns. Lord, I pray that for all of us, God, that we would turn away from our false sources of life and turn to you. And Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.